Every Monday through Thursday, we bring you a new story on the theme of power, culture, or the future. Handpicked from theoutline.com. I'm your host, James T. Green, and this is The Dispatch. Who bought them in stock own proportionate shares in the corporation. Two. Culture. So the story that I was interested in kind of talking about was a trend that I was noticing in contemporary fiction, particularly among women and queer authors. Fiction writer and teacher at Emerson College, Kit Haggard. Employing what has been called fabulism as a way of depicting the queer experience, the female experience, uh, the marginalized experience more generally. I was interested in kind of tracing that trend back to what I saw as kind of its roots, distinguishing it from other similar trends. So I'm, I'm really interested, for example, about the fact that it runs parallel to the Gothic tradition or the tradition of magical realism that you see in South America. And I wanted to explore some of the examples that I was seeing of that trend. I was fascinated by Carmen Maria Machado's short story collection, Her Body and Other Parties. Um, And then I also kind of wanted to talk about the work of Daisy Johnson and a couple of other writers who were writing either about um, queer characters or who were themselves queer and, and using fabulism as a kind of access point to the strangeness of a, of a marginalized experience. Wow, that sounds completely awesome. <laughs> Thank you. You mentioned a couple terms that a couple folks, including myself, <laughs> may never heard of, and that's like magical realism and fabulism. So first, let's start off with magical realism. What is that? So magical realism is kind of a complicated concept. It's really used to to talk about a period of writing coming out of Latin America in the second half of the 20th century. The person that most people think about is uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. It's kind of tricky to define because a lot of the people that, you know, Garcia Marquez would have called you know, from the northern cultural centers who who sort of considered themselves the center of the world. The people who were quick to label him a magical realist. It was it wasn't a term that any of the people that we call magical realists would have used to describe themselves. So I I have a sort of uneasy relationship to it. Um, but it is also really sort of definitive of this period in Latin American writing that is characterized by a sort of magical quality. People think about, you know, Isabel Allende, Garcia Marquez, uh, I think about Borges a little bit, though he comes a little bit earlier. He's sometimes kind of considered the the father of some of that. Fuentes. Um, there's a there's a Borges story, for example, where this man, pretty sure it's Borges, is is renting an apartment from a young woman, and I think the title of it is something like "Letter to a Young Woman in Paris," and the man can't stop vomiting up rabbits, and and that's just sort of that's the story, and it's sort of about his his relationship to this woman, but also his relationship to himself. Um, rabbits are such a sort of strange symbol, uh, fertility, multiplication, all of those things. So Garcia Marquez has just sort of strange things that happen in his novels. Butterflies follow a man around. A woman is just, you know, kind of sucked up into heaven. And those things just happen. And that's kind of part of part of life. And there's like no ending is is that like kind of the thing that's occurring here it's like these things just happen and then there's no resolution yeah i think i think 
for the most part, yeah, that's sort of true. And and the idea that Garcia Marquez kind of got out was that this isn't magical realism. This is just realism. This just happens sometimes. And he he tells stories, you know, of of things that seem magical, perhaps to a sort of more Western audience, but for him were just sort of normalized. And of course, it's it's difficult to kind of think about this without getting at the political situation that was happening at the time that he was writing. You know, 100 Years of Solitude, for example, is so much about about war and about, um, you know, what happens to people who go to war and, and happens to people who are part of a resistance and, and all of those things. So that's kind of how I personally want to distinguish that from the writing that we're seeing today, which is mostly coming from, for, for a large part, um, sort of you know, contemporary white Western authors as opposed to sort of the the Latin American tradition. So why do you think that's happening, at least in this current time, though? I think it's a bunch of factors. Um, I mean, I, th- I think a huge part of it is that we we live in very uneasy times. You know, one of the things that I talk about in, in the article is the fact that we especially if you look at sort of queerness as a as a microcosm of this, we're in a time when representation is higher than it has ever been. And some of that representation is good and some of it's bad. That's not to say that it's sort of universally good to see more representation because sometimes I think that can be harmful as well. But representation is up and at the same time we have such an increased awareness because of things like Twitter and social media and all of the stuff to different kinds of violence or injustice that we're seeing. The attention that's been put on the recent case, uh, you know, of the Colorado cake maker, for example, um, it's sort of only possible through social media, which is not to say that these things weren't happening before. I think it's sort of dangerous to argue that, oh, we're living in a, in a time of sort of increased, you know, injustice. I think we have a sort of increased awareness of it. But that said, of course, we're also living in a time of increased hate crimes. Hate crimes have been going up since 2016. So it's just steadily, which is kind of horrifying. You have you have this kind of play between the fact that queerness is more visible than it has been, I think, ever in history. Um, but also we just like, we live in a time of tumultuous injustice and violence. And and there's a kind of tension between those two things that I think needs needs some kind of outlet. And I think that fabulism is some is is in part a way of kind of accessing that um, and kind of getting into that that strangeness. But the other thing I think is that this is sort of an evolution of the form of the novel. If you think about the sort of history of the novel going back to um, you know the Victorian times, that there is actually sort of a linear progression of how the novel has developed. Um, we had modernism, we had postmodernism. We're moving into what some people are calling post-postmodernism, which is horrible. Um, but the shape of the novel is changing really, really fundamentally, I think. And this is sort of the number of sort of reimaginings we're seeing and and fabulism and plays with structure and form are all kind of part of, you know, trying to trying to make the story's new again, um, which is sort of the, the history of all writing. Yeah, I find it really interesting because it is almost like these authors are taking their othering in a way mm-hmm. and making the writing reflect that. Absolutely. Like it's almost like function and form becoming one, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Yeah, and I think that fabulism is is a is a tool to kind of make that really visible just because it lends itself so well to a sort of allegorical reading of, of any text. When you introduce something that's sort of magical or out of the ordinary, 
because we're sort of conditioned from from the time we're children to read fairy tales and fables as as allegories, we're really, really programmed to see that as sort of saying something slant-wise. So a thing that you mentioned was a lot of these new authors are white. Um, So I'm very curious, like, if you believe that, like, is there a fine line between inspiration and appropriation and whitewashing of this style? Yeah, totally. I mean, that's that's why I'm sort of un- a little uncomfortable with the term magical realism applied to these people and why I think it's important to think about this as a different tradition. I had a professor in, in college who called the tradition magical realism light, L-I-T-E. And, and his sort of take on the whole thing was that it was coming out of white women living in Brooklyn. And that's true to some extent. If you look at a lot of the people from the f- kind of first wave of fabulous writing, I think about Ramona Azabel and and Amy Bender, who I mentioned in the article as well, who are incredible, incredible writers. They're kind of interested in white, urban or suburban domesticity. Um, a lot of stories about relationships and families and a lot of interest in what it means to be a woman, a young woman in a relationship, a young woman in a city, how, how you kind of think about your relationship to your parents at that time in your life. And I think that all of those things are really, really valid. And I think that my professor's critique of it being magical realism light was a kind of way of just dismissing the fact that these were stories that were really focusing on the experience of women and especially of young women who maybe were not having as much sort of representation previously. But it's, it is true that you know, it is largely white women. But I think that that's also changing. I mean, Carmen Maria Machado, obviously, she says, <laughs> I heard her speak once, and she said that um, she was very surprised when people approached her and asked her why there wasn't more about race in her first book. And she said, well, you know, that's that was kind of like my queer book. I, you know, I have, I want to talk about race, but I'm going to do it in its own book. And Helen Oyeyemi, who I mentioned as well, is very interested in, in the sort of tension in the UK around I mean, she wrote she wrote writers for witching long before Brexit, but it's interesting to see the way that a lot of the issues of Brexit kind of play out in that novel, sort of um, hostility towards outsiders, just blatant racism that's sort of veneered over. And I think and I and I do think that fabulism is a really important tool for accessing other kinds of marginalized experience as well. And I and I wanted to write about the queer experience because that was a trend I had noticed and because I identify as queer and that kind of fit with what I had been drawn to in a lot of these novels originally. It's it's absolutely true that you could probably write a very similar essay about the fact that you do have a lot of writers of color who are kind of picking up on this as a way to to access that kind of marginalized experience as well. So earlier you mentioned a couple of these books, um, but I want to make sure that folks listening have like a clear list that they can go out to their bookstore, not Amazon, but their bookstore. <laughs> buy to, local. <laughs> <laughs> buy local uh, to their bookstore to read a couple of these books. I can't recommend Carmen Marie Machado's collection, Her Body and Other Parties enough. I, I think that a lot of people have picked that up and that's a great entry point into kind of a lot of other things, a lot of the other themes that I that I have been talking about. So if you loved that book, everything else I'm going to mention is also for you. The other book that I I just mentioned, Helen Oyeyemi wrote this novel, White is for Witching, um, which is about haunted houses and twins and doubles, and, and it's very gothic. I have a theory that is probably a, a, a separate essay about how it's all a reflection of The Fall of the House of Usher, the Edgar Allan Poe story. So if that sounds interesting to you, Again, she's really interested in race um, and sort of race in the UK. 
I also recently discovered Daisy Johnson, who's incredible. Um, she came out with her first short story collection, which is called Fen, a couple of years ago. And it's really brilliant and really beautiful. And then she just released a novel called Everything Under, which follows a young woman who's a lexographer and her search for her mother. But then there's there are also these two trans characters who are just kind of really, really fascinating. Um, and talking again about the reintegration of old stories and and kind of um, retellings, there is a sort of Sophoclean tragedy that plays out there. And I can't say anything else about that without ruining it, but it's really <laughs> fantastic. I just, I love that novel so much. I found it really astonishing and, and really crazily structured. Suzette Mayer wrote a book called Dr. Edith Vane and the Hairs of Crawley Hall. Um, this is, again, a, a really great example of, of the sort of intersection of race and queerness and the way that that can kind of play out. Um, this one really looks at race in academia, and it's set in Canada. And it's about an academic who is maybe losing her mind or maybe sort of under the the influence of this, I don't want to say it's a haunted building, but it's a sort of cursed building that is full of hairs. Um, <laughs> Samantha Hunt's The Dark Dark is a short story collection. It's not particularly queer, but it is really interested in the experience of motherhood and how strange motherhood is. But there are some fantastic, fantastic, fabulous stories in there, including one actually that influenced a section of um, the next book I want to talk about, which is called The Fifth Woman by Nona Casper. And that that novel and stories is all about a young woman who's recently lost her girlfriend in a biking accident and kind of the the strangeness of, of grief and how grief can kind of make the world strange. Mm. Um, but it is interesting because she's there's a story slash chapter in there that's deeply uh, influenced by Samantha Hunt. So yeah, I think every sort of all of those are great examples of what I'm talking about. That was fiction writer and teacher at Emerson College, Kit Haggard. Thanks, Kit. Thank you so much for having me. How can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Kit Haggard, um, or you can find my fiction on my website, which is kithaggard.wordpress.com. The Outline World Dispatch is produced and hosted by me, James D. Green. Today's music is courtesy of APM, and our theme is by the fantastic John Lagomarsino. I am James D. Green. See you later.